Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. The Christian life is one to be lived in anticipation of the coming of Christ. The day is soon coming when Jesus will return to snatch away the church, His bride. Are you ready? Turning to Revelation chapter 3 today, Pastor Phil shares on the differences between those who are looking forward to that day and those who are sleeping. Jesus, look, he doesn't say here, remember what, but remember how you have received and heard. Look, the church isn't lacking for information. The church is lacking in life and power. Too many believers and leaders in the church today have their degrees all the little letters after their names. They have all their little theological ducks in a row, but there is no life or passion or reality in what they know. Jesus is essentially asking this church, how did you receive? Remember how you received. Did you receive because of your great education? You know what? I am not against education. Please believe me. I am not against seminaries and Bible college. If God leads you to do that, great. I think that can be a great blessing if you get the right school. It's just that it should humble us and convict us to realize that the Lord launched the church at a time when there were no Bible schools or seminaries, where you didn't have to have a degree before you qualified to even be in ministry. It was simply a work of the Holy Spirit And he was poured out upon simple folks who had no training, really. They were fishermen and they were farmers and others. And the Holy Spirit filled their lives, radically transformed them. And they went out and they just preached the simple gospel in the power of the Spirit. And in the first 30 years of the church's history, they turned their world upside down. And Jesus is saying to Sardis, and he would say to the Protestant churches today in this country, How did your churches start? How did Protestantism start? It started by receiving the truth as a child in faith. I mean, Jesus would say to churches today that that is always how the life and power of the Spirit are imparted, like a child that just simply believes. Today we have made education absolutely essential for ministry. If you don't have an education, you're not qualified to minister. And I know a lot of people that have the educations, but there's no anointing upon their life. Today, the church has educated itself to death. We have Bible colleges, seminaries, seminars, courses, classes teaching us theology and doctrine, instructing us how to be Christians, how to do church, how to win the lost. And yet, for the most part, it's all work of the flesh. And nothing really of any consequence is being done for the Lord that is standing the test of time. And please do not point to the megachurches in this country and say, well, see, how can you say that? Look at what God is doing. Folks, I'm convinced not all megachurches are bad churches. I've said that. But I think a lot of these very large churches have watered down the gospel, have made their church so comfortable and so seeker-friendly that they're no longer confronting sin. 
And I think what's happening is you're, you're seeing just the very thing Paul warned about in the last days, where people would want their ears tickled so they would gather to themselves teachers who would tell them what they want to hear. And you say, well, how can you be sure of that? All right, good question. Look at our culture. Is our culture becoming lighter in the sense of more truth, purer, or is it becoming darker and more corrupt? We're salt and light. If we're doing our job, society should be getting brighter in the sense of morality, spirituality, truth, and should be getting more and more pure and less and less corrupt. We're not doing something right. We have mega churches, but these churches are really not impacting the culture. Why is that? Well, if your church is like the culture, trying to reach the culture, the culture doesn't feel any need to join your church for the most part because what you have, they already got. That's what they feel. And they got it better than you can give it to them. You want to give me skits and plays? I'll go to the theater. I'll go downtown to Chicago where the professionals perform. Why should I come? I went to a, a church in the area because when I'm on vacation, I will often go to different churches. I don't want to come here and, and, uh, and sit there while one of my pastors are teaching and you know, make them all self-conscious. So I, I check out different churches. And there was one church in the area, denominational church, I went to on a Sunday morning. And they thought they were going to be creative and do a little skit. All right? Problem was there were four people standing up there with the manuscripts in their hands reading off the manuscript. And I'm thinking, man, if you're going to do it, at least put a little effort into it. <laughs> thinking, good Lord. If I was a worldly person coming to the church, checking the Lord out, and this is what I saw, I would say, you know what? I can get that a lot better somewhere else. When the church tries to be like the world to reach the world, the church will never do the kind of job with glitz and glamour that the world can do. And when the church tries, it just comes across as a kind of a cheap, pathetic counterfeit. And the world picks up on it. We don't want. We don't need to give them what they've already got. We need to give them what only God can give them through the power of the Holy Spirit, which means we confront the culture in love. We don't become like the culture to reach the culture. We stand separate from the culture. Come out of her, my people, and be separate. Don't touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. J. Vernon McGee, great pastor, teacher, said, and I quote, My friend, the church today needs the Spirit of God working in it. We think we need methods, and we have all kinds of Band-Aid courses for believers in which you put on a little Band-Aid, and it will solve all your problems. What we really need to do is to get to the person of Christ whom only the Holy Spirit can make real and living to us. This is the thing Protestantism needs today, end quote. I fully agree. Well, in verse 3, Jesus goes on, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Uh, Again, Jesus is here borrowing a page from their city's history. Remember the saying that went around? Sardis was a city that was taken as a thief in the night. He kind of picks up on that, doesn't he? And he applies it to the church and says, All you who are the frozen chosen there in Sardis, all you who are dead, you need to repent of your sins. Come to me in truth, or else I'm going to come upon you as a thief, and I'm going to judge you. Now listen to me. Jesus never comes to his true church as a thief. Nowhere in Scripture do you find Jesus coming to his true church as a thief. He always is said to come as a bridegroom. 
He only comes to the dead apostate church as a thief. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 and I'll show you what I mean. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, Paul said, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. Look, Jesus doesn't come to his true church as a thief. That doesn't mean when he comes for his true church, some of us won't be sleeping. doesn't mean we'll be lost. It means we're going to be greatly embarrassed and we're going to grieve. Some will be ashamed at his appearing, John says, because they've been sleeping in the light. Oh, they're saved, but they haven't done much for the Lord in the way of service. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes as a thief to this world, it will be in judgment. God has not appointed us for judgment because we have received Christ and our sins have been paid for. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now, it says one author said, though, he said, this is where mainline denominationalism increasingly finds itself. Proponents of such do not believe in a rapture or even a millennial kingdom. They teach that the promises of the kingdom uh, and the sayings of Isaiah, the teachings of Revelation are simply allegorical. Don't look for the rapture, they say. Don't look for a real kingdom established on the earth. Thus, they will be totally caught off guard by Jesus' return. And that is the problem with so many churches today, and I'm thinking in particular Protestant churches. There's a lot of evangelical churches today that are missing the boat too. But there's, there's so many Protestant churches that don't believe in the rapture, don't believe that the millennial kingdom is literal, So when these things happen, they're going to be caught totally unprepared. Well, Jesus then moves into the promise. Each of these letters contains a promise, starting in verse 4. We read the promise that he gives to the church in Sardis. He said, the church, excuse me, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. For the most part, he says there are a few who haven't defiled their garments, which implies, of course, that for the most part, the church in Sardis had become basically a beautiful burial garment covering over a lot of decay and defilement. Herodotus, the church historian, said, and I quote, The church of Sardis eventually became lax and loose in its moral standards and open to licentiousness. So you have a church that most of it is corrupt, unregenerate, but there was in this church a small faithful remnant. Now, that that should not surprise us because one thing that Israel as a nation and the church have in common is that even though Israel was a large nation, you know, maybe two, three, or even four million people at times, 
Not everybody in Israel who was Jewish was really a child of God. You had many pagans. I mean, they went through the motions. They had their feast days and their uh, new moons and Sabbaths they celebrated. They brought their sacrifices to the temple uh, to atone for their sins. But it was all a routine. It was all kind of a ritual, a formality. It was no life there. And God knew who they were. But in the nation, you had a faithful remnant. We see that in Elijah's day, it was only 7,000 out of a nation of 2 or 3 million. It's not many. That was the faithful remnant that really knew God. Just like in Christendom today, out of a billion people, how many of them really know the Lord? I don't know. Some surveys tell us that 80% of people in America are Christians. Do you think that 80% of the people that you know and work with and live next to know the Lord for tr- in truth? I don't think so. They may be prof- are professing Christians. How many are actually saved? If it was more than 10 or 12%, I'd be shocked. Maybe a little more. I don't know. I know one thing Jesus said here to this church, which I think is indicative of the church today in general. He said, you have a few in Sardis who are really born again. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, he called his church a little flock. The Greek word is where we get a word micron or micro from. Very small. Protestantism today does have its saints, as we've already said, who are truly born again. They have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. They love the word. They're faithful to Jesus. They are the faithful remnant. In fact, the word Sardis means remnant or escaping ones. And those are going to escape the wrath to come. When Jesus comes for his church, because they are genuine believers who have clothed themselves in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, they will be spared. They will escape the wrath to come. But a good segment, most of Protestantism, as well as most of Roman Catholicism, is going to be going into the Great Tribulation as Paul, or excuse me, as we've learned last week in our learning today. But let me just say this again. Protestantism has produced some of the greatest men and women of God in the history of the church. Again, I think of men like Luther. Now, these were not perfect men. I, I don't, you know, I can't, I don't agree with everything Martin Luther did or, or believed, or Calvin, or, other, or Wesley. But overall, these were men who were used mightily by God, who really knew God. Of course, Men like John Knox, who was a great man who reached Scotland for the Lord. Later on, John Bunyan, the great Baptist preacher who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Wesley and Whitfield, who both uh, founded the, uh, the Methodist Church. You know, Wesley was said to be the greatest Englishman that ever lived. He w- it was uh, said that he was used by God almost single-handedly to save England from the fate that befell France revolution that tore it apart when in England they experienced true revival under Wesley's ministry that saved the country by by bringing men and women to Christ and uh, the Spirit of God upon that nation. Or men like John Moffat, who was a Scotsman who went to Africa, David Livingston, who actually opened up that continent, William Carey, uh, who uh, went to India, not to mention Amy Carmichael. I mean, there are so many people in the history of the Protestant Church that were absolutely incredible men and women of God. Even the Roman Catholic Church during the Dark Ages, uh, many godly men and women came out of that system. That's the point, though. 
They came out of that system, but God is saying, look, in every system, I have true believers. That doesn't, though, mean the system itself is sanctified or is holy or whatever. And that's why we cannot, we cannot look to a movement or a name or a man to put all of our, you know, loyalty to. I know that when Pastor Chuck Smith goes to be with the Lord, if any of us start calling ourselves Smithians, he will come back and haunt us. He doesn't want a movement named after himself. It's all about Jesus. You know, but unfortunately, because Calvary Chapel has been used so much by the Lord, there are people that think Calvary Chapel is the only right on church. I don't think that. I think that's dangerous and haughty to think that. Because we're doing the same thing Sardis did. We have a name. It's easy to rest in the name. Don't you know we're Calvary Chapel? Don't you know what God did through our movement? And we're living in the past, talking about the 60s and the Jesus movement and all of that. And there's a lot of people that attend Calvary Chapels that are doing the same thing that the people in Sardis were doing. Talking about the good old days. Talking about how God moved 40 years ago. Look, God wants to move in this generation. I thank God he moved 40 years ago among the hippies. I see a generation of young kids who are going to hell right before my eyes. I want God to work today to reach these kids for Christ. Well, in verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Of course, this is a reference to the righteousness of Christ, which we put on by faith. In contrast to the filthy rags of self-righteousness, which we read about in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, there's a lot of people going to church who are clothing themselves in the filthy rags of self-righteousness, thinking that they can stand before a holy God someday, clothed in their own works, and God will accept them, and God will certainly not accept them. In fact, that was the whole point of the parable that Jesus gave of the wedding feast, remember? How the Jews who were bidden to come did not want to come. They were too busy. And so Jesus told the, in the parable, the king that was throwing the, the wedding feast for his son said, go out into the highways and byways and, and, and just compel as many as you can to come and fill the wedding hall. And the king went out when the guests had all been brought in. And he noticed one man who was not wearing a proper garment. And he said, sir, how is it that you came in here without the proper attire? And he was speechless, and he told the servants, throw him out into the outer darkness. You read that and go, well, that's not really fair. I mean, here they compelled this guy to come in, then they threw him out because he wasn't dressed properly. What you don't understand is in that culture, the host of the wedding feast always provided garments for the guests. The issue wasn't that this guy wasn't properly attired because he didn't have the means. He refused the garment the king was offering, and that's why he couldn't remain. There is only one garment that we can put on that will allow us to stand in the presence of God and be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the righteousness of Christ, which we put on by faith. Too much of the denominationalism is all about what we're going to do for God, all the works we're going to do for God. We're going to wrap ourselves in our self-righteous works, and we think God's going to accept that. And you know what? It is not going to happen. And many people are going to be shocked 
when they stand before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment, and he's going to say to them, I never knew you depart from me. And they're going to say, well, Lord, Lord, don't you remember me? All the works I did, I even prophesied and cast out demons, and I had that national ministry, you know, and I was, you know, doing all these works for you. And he's going to say, I never knew you. You were not really one of mine. You were not clothed in my righteousness. You were all about your works. Then Jesus says something that really alarms a lot of people. He said, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, look, he doesn't say that he's going to blot out anyone's name from the book of life. He just simply says that those people who truly have faith in him, he definitely will not blot their names out. But I realize some say, well, yeah, but what's implied is that somebody's name could be blotted out from the book of life. And so now you have, well, does that mean that, you know, our salvation is not eternally secure and so on and so forth? Look, let me give you uh, one interpretation. I'll throw it out to you and, and let you run with it. There are those that believe that the book of life actually contains all the names of everyone who has ever lived on the earth, both the righteous and the unrighteous, and they point to Psalm 69, verse 28. Revelation 13, verse 8 and 17, verse 8, suggests that the names of the true believers are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. However, when a person who is born into this life who will never accept Christ, when they're born, their name is written into the book of life, which is really God's invitation list. It's really a book that their names are written in the book in the sense that they are invited to be a part of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, of course, when they die and they have not received Christ, their names are then blotted out. Jesus told his disciples to rejoice because their names were written in heaven. The Greek verb is in the perfect tense and should be translated the way Kenneth Weiss translated it in his uh, expanded translation of the New Testament. Weiss was a Greek scholar. Uh, it should be translated, your names have been written in heaven and are on permanent record up there. So once your name is written in heaven, it's a matter of permanent record. Warren Worsby said this, If the names of believers, the elect, are written from the foundation of the world, and if God knows all things, why would he enter the name of somebody who would one day fall and have to be removed from the book? We are enrolled in heaven because we have been born again. And no matter how disobedient a child may be, he or she cannot be unborn. And so as I said, when... A person is born, they are written into the book of life because Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Technically, his blood has paid the price for every sinner that will ever be born on the face of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that every person born on, into this world is automatically saved. They have to exercise faith and receive the gift. But their name is written there in the book of life. And if they receive Christ, it will remain. When they die, though, they've not received Christ, their name is then blotted out. And what is, remains at the very end is the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15, or excuse me, 21, verse 27 says. So eventually what is left are simply the names of those who have received Christ and will spend eternity with him. Quickly, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the who? Ah, the churches. And I bring that out because we need to be careful that we don't look at the letters to, we'll say, Thyatira or Sardis and say to ourselves, well, those letters were really talking about the Roman Catholic Church or the Protestant Reformation. I'm just an evangelical Christian. 
I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a Protestant. So really those letters don't apply to me. So I can kind of dismiss what they're saying. No, you cannot because the idea is every church got all seven letters indicating that there's a little bit of each of these letters in all of us. And we have to really make sure as we read these letters, we have to look at these letters and find out if any of it does pertain to you and I. There was the story some time ago of a young pastor who was uh, hired, called, installed. I don't know what they they call it now, but uh, he was uh, hired on to be the pastor of a church that had long since been dead. He knew it was dead, but he figured that by being faithful and teaching the Word and being real positive and upbeat, he could breathe new life into it. And so he tried his best and took maybe a year or two trying his best to teach the Word, trying to be very upbeat and positive. But you know what? The church, the members there were just dead for so long that they they were not interested in any kind of new life being pumped into them. Finally, one day on a Sunday morning, exasperated, the young pastor looked at the, the congregation and said, you know what? This church is dead. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.